Sean. Hey, Radcast is on. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. From the Porter's 10Cast Studio, here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. All right, welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. It's been just a little bit. David and I have been very busy while we've been kind of isolated with this COVID-19 stuff, but I've got David with me today, and we were talking well, it was a few weeks back about how even though it's May, it's really prep time for archery season and elk hunting. It is. It's really time to start thinking about it, and you know, we've had a lot of requests of is Radcast coming back? What's going on? And in this new world we live in, it's been a little tumultuous. So, yeah, we haven't had the uh, the equipment to really do what we thought was justice for this until now. So, we're recording remotely and going to do the best we can. We're gonna we're gonna have some fun with you guys. So, thanks for sticking with us. Uh, a couple of developments I want to tell you about before we get started. Um, we do have a website now. So you guys can go out there and you can get a little bit more of your fill of Ragcast stuff by going to ragcastoutdoors.com. Again, that's ragcastoutdoors.com. Uh, be patient on that. We're, we're putting up more content as we can, but it takes a lot of time. Um, and so we're working on that. Uh, we've got a few posts out there for blog posts and recipes and things that you can look at. Um, we've also got some stuff coming on getting kids involved in the outdoors, some just basic information. Um, so definitely check that out. And also you can sign up for our email list. So if you want to get notifications on new shows that are coming out, uh, anytime that we put out a blog post, recipe, that kind of thing, you can go to our Facebook page, which is at Radcast Outdoors, and you can click the little sign up button and you'll be getting all those emails from us so that you can keep up to date. So let us know what you like, what you don't like, what you want to hear more of. We got some cool stuff coming. So yep. And you can always email the show at info at ragcastoutdoors.com. Again, that's info at ragcastoutdoors.com. You can give us suggestions about things to talk about or, you know, whatever's on your mind. So we definitely appreciate that feedback. Um, so yeah, let's talk archery elk hunting. Um, David has the experience, whereas I do not on this topic. So this is definitely going to be a show all about David and kind of some of the things that he knows and does. So why why do people need to start prepping now if they're going to start doing archery elk season? You know, it's it's never too early to start prepping, especially for an archery elk hunt. And there's, you know, it's a big can of worms that we're going to, we'll try and make a little consensus of today and just skim the cream off the top because I've spent years trying to perfect my setup and why I do things and how I do things but you know just just right off the bat of start prepping and thinking now because it's not something you want to wait till the end of August and e even something as simple as oh I need this piece of archery equipment fixed from a pro shop you try and get into a pro shop in August there the, the lines out the door and around the corner right and personally myself, all my adjustments to my bow get made in January, February, and then I start shooting and I want to have that string shot in, have that peep, you know, something as simple as if you put a new string on your bow because you neglected it and you kind of look at it the week before season and you go, ah, I don't know if I trust that string, that peep needs time to get shot in and quit relaxing, right, and turning. And that's really frustrating when you go to draw back and your peep rolls not all the way, just a quarter of a peep to where you can still see through it, but you're now looking through an oval instead of a circle. It, it, it affects your accuracy and it's really annoying. So I like to get all those bow tuning adjustments done as early as I can and start shooting as much as I can through the summer while it's nice outdoors. So that's... The biggest thing I'd say is start prepping now, you know, looking at maps, picking areas, you know, just dissecting information. There's a there's a myriad of things we could go into, but, you know, what, right off the top, I'd like to talk about just, you know, if we're specifically talking archery and accuracy, you know, there's this stigma of a nine-inch plate out there, and I think we've touched on the podcast a little bit about this, but I used to have the theory of, well, you know, elk has like a 16, 18-inch kill zone. If you're putting all your arrows in a 9-inch plate at 
x distance. Well, if you double that distance, you're still in that 16-inch quote-unquote kill zone. I've changed my thinking now to where <laughs> take that 9-inch plate, draw a 4-inch circle on it, and wherever I pull one arrow out of 4 inches, that is my max distance. And, you know, operating under the first modem, you're decreasing your odds by 50% of making a lethal shot. The second way, you're increasing your odds. I mean, pretty much, I mean, let's say that that four-inch circle, I can't keep an arrow, you know, I can keep all, all my arrows in that four-inch circle at 30 yards. 30 yards is now my max hunting distance because at 32 yards, I pull one arrow out of that circle. If I have an elk at 30 yards in the woods, it's a dead elk. Under the old assumption of, well, I can shoot to 60 because I can still keep all those arrows in that plate. That doesn't mean you have a dead elk at 60 yards. So, you know, that, that and we can get into a whole bunch more. But that really, if you start there, well, take, that, take that paper plate, draw a circle, and start shooting at it. I don't care if you're using, you know, an atlatl, a rifle, a bow and arrow. I don't care if you're using a nuclear bomb. If you practice and are efficient with your equipment and know your equipment intimately, you're going to increase your success. And this archery elk hunting is not a high success sport. You're not you're not undertaking something that is, you know, this isn't a guaranteed. So, yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting to me about archery elk is, you know, it does take a lot more preparation than most hunting sports. Like it, when if I go rifle elk hunting, it's not the same. You know, I'm going to go sight in my rifle and make sure I have my gear, but it's not nearly as intensive of a time preparing that archery elk hunting is. Just because you have to get so much closer to an animal to have success. You have to get rifle close and then figure out how to get 100 yards close. Exactly. So for you, one of the questions I've been thinking about is for you, what do you, I mean, you're shooting every day basically until September until you go hunting right now so what what do you want to tell people as far as that kind of preparation how often should they be shooting their bow um, you know what kind of setup do they need to be practicing the way they should be so I find it interesting to, to back up just a little bit when I first started getting into archery you know it, it doesn't matter what brand you can use brand X bow but when I got into it I got into archery with a, a bow that was half the price of a decent rifle setup not a nice rifle just a you know standard an archery used to be you know bows were cheaper than a firearm and it was i mean i'm not gonna lie to you patrick that first two or three hunts i went on i mean i could barely keep keep a group together at 20 yards right but the equipment i was shooting was a late 90s bow it was not the technology was not what we have now. And that, that leads me into one more little facet I want to get to. And I see people gear shaming other hunters, right? You don't, and, and this has transcended from other, you know, I saw this in the fly fishing world years ago and it's still there of, mm-hmm. oh, you don't mm-hmm. have a sage rod? Oh, you don't have this? Oh, you didn't show up with X boots? Well, you're not good enough to fish with us. It's like, Hold on, wait a second. We're supposed to be a team and have some collaboration here. So, but to get back to your original question of, you know, the the gear and the prep, you know, like I said, we could get into hours and hours of why I use this piece of gear and why I need that piece of gear. But, you know, as far as the practice portion with your specific weapon, you know, what I've seen is a lot of people, and I cringe when oh I didn't draw my rifle tag. So I'm going to buy the -the over-the-counter archery tag two weeks before season, go in and buy a new bow. And the equipment nowadays, I mean, you can be lethal at 30 yards in a half hour at a bow shop, you know, at at a Cabela's or a Bass Pro. You can walk out the door and have the, the arrow has more kinetic energy than my bow ever had in the 90s. And you'll be more accurate at 30 yards than I ever was, right? But I was shooting aluminum arrows. I was shooting... There was a while there, I wasn't even shooting a peep shite, and I wasn't shooting a D-loop, I was shooting fingers on the string, you know. I finally got this release aid, and that was 
<laughs> there was all I so you know I was young, but all these advancements have been really cool. So you know if and that's why I get to that distance thing. That can be a huge argument, even in the rifle world of what is an ethical long distance shot. Yep. And I use that same pipe plate method, and I'll tell you right now, I'm a I'm about a 450 yard shooter with a rifle. You you stretch out much past 500, and I pull shots off that plate. Other guys can do a lot better, right? But that that also brings up the the thought process of you know in a controlled, calm environment at the rifle range, at my archery range here in the backyard, I have no pressure. I have no limbs, sticks, I'm standing in a flat field, yeah, I can I can lob an arrow at some distance at home. And there's some guys that have taken some long shots on animals, and I'm not going to, I'm not one to judge either way what's too far or what's not far enough. But you have to be the judge yourself of that, and the best way to do it is take that paper plate out, put the broadheads on, screw them on, and, you know, actually put the proof on paper of, what can you do with your equipment? And that same thought process, instead of doubling my yardage of what I can do on paper in practice, if you max, you know, make that your maximum, when you have that off-camber shot or that quick shot or whatever, you're still going to have a very good chance of being successful. Yeah, and I think every shooter is going to be different, right? Like you said, it's going to depend on who you are. I've seen guys with rifles that are just flat-out amazing shots. You know, people dropping a coyote that's running full speed at 100 yards like it's nothing, you know, and just fold them up. But I can't do that. You know, I wouldn't trust myself to make that shot. But there are guys who can. And I think that is important to remember is that everybody's got a different skill set and different abilities. But you don't hone those abilities unless you're out in the field and you're actually practicing like you're talking about. The controlled environment's great. And, I mean, how, how often do you practice, especially leading up into the season? What's your typical routine? So I typically quit shooting the bow late November, early December, just because the weather around here is not great. And this year I've actually got a uh, release aid trainer, and I'm inside indoors here practicing on shoulder mounts. You know, all January I was, you know, and I think it's an MD50 gear created this you know, shot trainer that simulates your draw length and your hold weight. And so you can at least mentally go through your your shot cycle, right? It's basically like dry firing your rifle. But as we get into spring, on typical years, you know, I'll do two to six 3D shoots, and then I've got a static range in my backyard, and I try and shoot, if not every night, every other night. And that leads me into, it would be better for people... To literally shoot one arrow before they go to work in their garage at three yards than it would be to one Saturday go wing 500 arrows. Because, you know, they, the saying practice makes perfect needs adjusted. Perfect practice makes perfect, right? And so if, and along that thinking, when I'm out elk hunting, Patrick, I'm going to be shooting one arrow at one elk, right? I don't get 500 shots at him on Saturday. I, so I would rather, at four-yard shot in the garage every day, you know, put a, a life-size or a lifesaver-size dot on your target in your garage if you live in town where you don't have the capabilities of a range and you have to tr- travel to shoot your bow. You know, if you can hit that, that tic-tac or that thumbnail in your garage at four yards with, with the first arrow out of your bow, that's going to get you through the mentally through the the cycle and the shot and everything and then yes you need to sight your pins in and do some further range practice but again having the muscle memory of shooting that one arrow because typically it's going to be early morning late evening you haven't pulled your bow back all day because it's been on your back right you're hiking here's your shot it's crunch time that's and that's what we all strive for and work towards all year and that's why i'm so drawn to archery elk hunting is yes it's we're only in the field for a couple of weeks, but if I'm not reading about it or thinking about it or practicing with my bow, I'm talking to somebody about it. Right? <laughs> yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the other part of the prep, which is knowing the area, knowing the terrain, kind of knowing and prepping for what you're going to be dealing with. Because 
I mean, especially like I think about Wyoming, there are some specialized areas that you can draw. You know, obviously Red Desert Elk is a big one and some of the others, but I mean, there are places that have different terrain. Like if I'm hunting, say down around Rock Springs and Rollins area for elk versus hunting like the Grovant or up in the Hoback or wherever it might be, they're, they're different places. So how do you go about your research and just kind of planning it out from a logistics side? Well, that's, you know, there's, there's some basic places to start, but that's the one really alluring thing about hunting. And it transitions to fishing is, okay, you get really good with rainbows in a pond. Okay, now I'm going to go after browns up high, or I'm going to go after cutthroat here, or I'm going to go after sturgeon, all right? So, and even, even the same, okay, I'm going to catch a rainbow in a lake and a stream and a high lake and a desert lake, right? And I'm going to catch one on a fly and one on bait and one on a spinner and one trolling. So there's there's a lot of techniques. I mean, uh, I'll make it really simple. You know, it, it, it came apparent to me that fire needs three things to exist, right? You need fuel, you need oxygen, and you need ignition. Well, Elk are a lot like fire. They need three things to exist. They need food, they need water, and they need shelter, right? And fire and elk will sustain themselves with two of those three things most of the day, right? I mean, if you if you have a fire and you take one of those two things away, the fire can kind of sustain itself for a little while, right? Elk can sustain themselves. So if you can find two of those three things, you don't have to find all three for the elk, right? You don't have to find their bedroom, their dining room, and where they're watering. If you find two of those three things, you find the bedroom and the water, or you find the food and the water, but you don't know where they're bedding, you know, you can put the piece of the puzzle together. And the other one that makes it easy, Google Earth and Onyx Maps, you know, I do a ton of time looking digitally at a new area and finding those benches and saddles and pinch points and choke points. But first I find water that's <laughs> that's the most important especially you get in some of these units some of these other units no water's a non-issue you're you're staying dry is the the issue right so those are some some things to think about as far as you know yeah you need to plan for the terrain and no matter where you're going first aid should be you know have some first aid training, understand a little bit about first aid, have a first aid kit, because how many, every year we lose some hunter to, it's usually exposure, right? And a lot of those times, it's a solo hunter who's gone out, hasn't left a travel plan, and sometimes it's unfortunate they just, you know, they have some sort of medical issue and they can't get back to the truck, but there's been times where somebody's fallen down and sprained an ankle, right? And then a freak storm comes in, especially here in Wyoming up high. We get <laughs> we get snow in all the time. All the time. So, you know, getting into new areas, there's that that goes down back to your planning of am I going to do a DIY hunt this year? Did I draw a tag? Am I doing a general tag? Am I doing resident my state? Am I going to another state? You know, so there's questions there. If you're going to go the guided route, which is a, I would highly recommend it, especially if you're brand new to this, because that takes a lot of that pressure off of the system. Now, I don't do much guided hunts, haven't done a lot of guided hunts. You know, I worked for Outfitter, went to guide school, learned all that, and did some of that, but there's an element of the DIY that, you know, it translates to fishing or gardening or building a house. You know, if, if you want to do the DIY thing, having the guide come in and tell you, well, your garden needs to be done this way, or your house needs to be done that way, or we're going to hunt this drainage instead of that drainage, can, it adds an element of difficulty of, you now have to work with this guide, but, you know, having started 10 years of non-successful elk hunts every year for a decade right that journey it took me well, it was my ninth season before i killed a, a raghorn bull with a bow i had a lot of missed opportunities and i had a couple big bulls that if i would have changed my practice routine 
honed and refined my craft and been a little more invested, I, I would have had success sooner, right? But just getting out, it, it's like hooking into a big fish that breaks your line because you didn't have the right leader or you didn't retie or whatever. You know, you have to learn some of those lessons the hard way. Yeah. But, you know, so you've got to, and the, the cool thing is the internet's, I mean, I can remember going way back in the day going to the county and printing out colored, you know, their colored maps and paying them for them. And now with Onyx on your phone, I mean, it's, it's technology has added some really good things, but it's also taken some things away. I mean, I saw a product come out on the market and there's, there's not a lot of products I'm going to not like, but. I can see the benefit of a tracking broadhead. It's got a little microchip in it, and once you shoot it, it... But I can also see somebody going, I'm just going to wing one in this bull. Now I've got a GPS tracker in him, and I'll just come in and shoot him later. And I I mean, it, it comes to the point, Patrick, of... You know, I, I saw a rifle company that basically has a computer controlled scope that won't let the trigger fire until it's lined up perfectly to you know at what point in time do we remove the skill yes i mean these things are going to make for cleaner safer quicker harvests but at what point in time do we just put a a halter around the elk and have them in a pasture and just walk up to a needle and inject them and they fall over silently asleep i mean it th there's a line there i don't know where it is yeah. right but I think that debate rages in the fishing world too with, you know, the kind of technology that's evolved there with fish finders and, I mean, real-time, you know, ability to see the fish in the water and know what species it is. I mean, there's there's a lot of debate about that. And I, I mean, I think, again, we have to look at, you know, what's right for that person and what are they willing to get out of the hunt because I think you see some people going a little bit, back in time with their hunts and they want to get more out of it so they're they're utilizing a little bit less of the technology and doing a little bit more on their own you know without having you know all the high-tech stuff which i think is kind of cool i mean there's there's two sides to that right but i think it is important for people to realize though if you're gonna go and you're gonna take two weeks or a week and you're gonna archery elk hunt you got to be ready and that's going to look different for an elk hunter in New Mexico, potentially, than one in Oregon or one in Alaska, Canada, Wyoming, wherever you're hunting them. But I think there are some, like you mentioned already, there are some precepts that are important, some things that you should be doing regardless of where you're going. And I think just like fishing, like you said, having maps and understanding what you're going to be dealing with and where you ought to start it's probably smart because if it takes you five days to find them and you only have six days, that puts you in a really bad position, doesn't it? So, I mean, like I said, if, if you're brand new to this, I would highly look at, if not a fully guided, at least a drop camp style hunt and call the references of that outfitter. Don't just, you know, there's some really great reputable 40 year outfitters in states across the West here that do a really phenomenal job and are, and are honest and you know they're not selling you 100% they're giving you an opportunity and what are they doing you know they're hauling you in and out of decent spots now I hunt far away from those places now for a lot of reasons but you know for a brand new where I don't have to worry about the transport and that that we'll get into some of that but back to you know a debate that I see all the time it's gear you know what gear is going to help me get and and bow hunters are gear tech junkies I, i'm one of them right i'm always looking at what's the new latest and greatest but ultimately in the end of the day more tags is going to equal more harvest right you you could take somebody who's had 500 elk tags in their life and put them out in the field with minimal to low-end bargain junk gear and then you could take somebody that's had two tags and throw all the best gear in the world at them. And that guy that's had 500 tags is going to be successful. And the guy that's had two tags but has state-of-the-art gear, he still could be successful. I'm not going to say he's not. But if I was just starting this out and looking at the price of the way the gear is gone, 
you know, my, my suggestion would be invest in one quality piece a year. And the, the two pieces that I won't leave home without, good boots and good binos, right? I mean, you, you, can't, you can't hunt what you can't see and you can't hunt what you can't hike to. If you've got blisters on your feet or subpar boots, you're going you're gonna to pay the price and learn. And I learned that lesson the hard way. A couple different times I wore my old worn-out work boots and had cold, wet feet with blisters that you're not going to go far. And, you know, I've upgraded glass a couple times now. And I, I mean, the price range on binoculars is, it's, it's staggering, right? You can go from $50 to like $3,000 and everywhere in between. I would say, you know, get the best you can afford in binoculars. That's one place. And the best you can afford in boots. And then build it one piece of gear a year after that, right? And some of us are fortunate enough we can just pick up the phone, pick up the Cabela's magazine and have it all delivered before we go. But, you know, as from my guiding background, I'd way rather see a hunter show up with three-year-old broken good condition boots and a rifle that he's been, you know, hunting with since he was a teenager or she than, than have somebody come with brand new week old boots and a brand new rifle they bought last week that they put maybe half a box of rounds through, right? Just because the guy that's had the rifle, you know, and that's not to say if you're brand new to this that I'm saying, well, don't show up with new boots and a new rifle. No, it can be done. But instead of buying the rifle two weeks before the hunt, buy it six months and and take it out and practice and put five or six boxes of ammunition through it and know where your accuracy is. So, you know, again, back to that, you know, we've, we've covered the mapping portion and finding at least food and water and bedding areas. Find some of that. Find some travel routes. And once you get on the ground, go check those areas out and start looking for fresh tracks, right? And, and the cool thing is, is, yeah, when elk are grazing, they get off the trails a little bit. But the second they go to feed or bed, they hop on a trail and they cruise back and forth. So if... If you're on some of those main travel trails and there's no elk tracks, it's time to move a drainage over, right? The, and elk are very transient. They, they're they here this week and they're gone next week. And it reminds so, me of walleye. Yes. <laughs> just like that, yeah. But, you know, just because yesterday there was, a, there was a herd elk in here and you're having great success, don't invest another seven of your nine-day hunt in that one, you know wallow or saddle or drainage or whatever you know if if you're not seeing or hearing or having some fresh elk activity fairly recently or at least they you know they're a thousand pound animal they have to leave a track in the mud if you're not seeing activity where they were cruising through recently it's time to cover some ground and that that moves me on to the next part is there's this story of a boy who uh, wanted to start fox trapping right and so this veteran trapper came out to his family ranch and showed him where to trap fox, right? And this kid, just every year at the first sale, could just, you know, had beautiful, great foxes. The family ranch inevitably got sold, right? He couldn't trap the family ranch anymore. And then this kid couldn't trap fox anymore. He, he, he moved to a new place and and part of it is is learning to that that trapper showed him well here's this choke point here's this pinch point here's this place where the foxes are naturally going to just be drawn to right think of elk on a wallow or think of think of a guzzler in the red desert hunting unit where i mean if they don't drink water there they've got to go miles to the next those key and they call it salient feature right in a river you might have a boulder or a log or it's something very unique that attracts it creates some sort of environment change that that fish or animal is drawn to but back to the kid in the fox stories again he was when he was shown exactly and you could have a whitetail hunter that puts huge whitetail or a bull elk hunter that puts huge bull elk on the ground every year but he was shown or owns this one piece of private or spot and when he goes to a new unit he's lost right so part of that is learning why 
why did I find elk here? What were they doing? Always asking, right? And if I go in the elk woods even now and don't learn something, it's not that there wasn't a lesson there to be learned. It was I wasn't paying attention, right? And so that moves me on to the most important rule in elk hunting is the same as rule two and three. I mean, the first three rules are the wind and the wind and the wind. You break that rule, you're not going to get an elk. And it, you know, it's this old, they can, they can see you moving twice. They can hear you three times. All they have to do is smell you once and then they're gone. Yeah. I was going to ask you another thing about locations. This is one of my pet peeves in fishing is that I'll spend hundreds of hours potentially, you know, honing in and years honing in on specific spots and specific seasons for specific fish. And then people come and ask me for those spots, you know, just because they saw I had success. I don't like doing that to other people and saying, hey, where did you catch that? Like, I might ask for a body of water, but that's it. Like, I'm not going to say, hey, did you go to, you know, X spot on X lake? But I see that in hunting as well, where you have the guy who's, you know, maybe read a couple of magazine articles and gets really excited and wants to go elk hunting. So he goes and finds his buddy that's been doing it for, you know, 20 years and just expects to get all the spots handed to him. Um, so what, what's your, what's your feeling on that? So, I mean, if you're fortunate enough and lucky enough that someone takes you to their fishing spot or somebody takes you on a elk hunt for a weekend, right? And says, yeah, we'll go check out my spot. It's one th- yeah, it's one thing to be invited. It's another thing to like push it. You know, what, what's even worse is you take somebody to your duck hunting spot or your turkey hunting spot and the next weekend they say, oh, or, or for whatever reason we can't go the next weekend and you're like, well, maybe we'll go the weekend after and you go the weekend after by yourself and that person's there with two other buddies. There, there's nothing more irritating than, and I mean, coming from the guide and outfitter end of it we had a lot of times clients riding around with gps in their saddlebags marking all our spots right and then next year guess what yep they show up on a diy instead of going guided and hunting those same spots now it's public land right so part of me goes well they can be there but how many times as a fisherman patrick have you gone and been skunked somewhere oh yeah that's just part of it, right? That, that's learn. part of it. But, but you learn, hey, I'm not going to go back there yep. that time of year again. Exactly. And you go somewhere and don't get skunked, right? It, so it's not a one-to-one ratio. It's right. it's way more than that. So you know, some of these spots are honed and refined. It's 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 almost like panning gold, right? Yeah. You, you have to pan a lot of strikeouts before you hit the home run and, and find that honey hole and if you're kind enough to share it with somebody, they need to. There's that ethics there, right? And there, again, legally and ethically are two way different things yeah. in this sport. And I think that's important, especially with elk hunting. You're talking about a pretty high profile thing. Fishing, you know, it's it's fishing, but I've seen the damage that it that can be done by telling the wrong person, you know. And then next time you show up, there's 30 people in that spot. We joked about it fishing the other day of the I Trash the Fishing Hole starter pack, and I haven't really thought too hard about <laughs> I Trash the Hunting Camp starter pack. But oh, there's, a, there's a lot there. You know, we, we talked about the Eagle Claw pre-tied hooks, the foam starter can of worms. It, nowadays, it's a Red Bull can. It used to be a, a Coors can and, and some smokes, right? Right. You can go to any fishing hole across the United States and find those four things. Well, you know... And, I come from the scouting background, and we really do, you know, we need to leave it better than we find it. That pack it in, pack it out mentality, there's nothing worse than when I roll into a camp in the wilderness with my horses, I've spent all year excited about it, pull up there and there's some garbage there. It just, it taints it. It's like now, instead of feeling like you're the first person to ever be there, even though I'm, it might be the same camp I've gone to for years, right? It just finding the candy bar wrapper in the trail and I'm sure I'm guilty of one falling out of my pack at some point in time but I've picked up a lot more than I've ever dropped right sure it's the ethics of keeping things clean and pristine for the next person and you know I think hunting and fishing I run into it where 
you know, it could be hunting where you go to a bird hunting spot and there's shells everywhere. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you're, you're fishing a stretch of river and there's a bunch of line on the ground and it's got hooks and weights and everything else on it. Can't you know? tell you how many times I've filled a gallon tr- oh, bag, yeah. my, my lunch bag full of used line and maybe some Marlboro. And so, you know, I read a study in an article about consumptive versus non-consumptive recreation activities. And it was a... You, people need to go find it. I wish I would have actually... I, could, I can't remember who, who, you know, commenced the study or who did it, but they basically had a little poll and study and write-up about consumptive versus non-consumptive. And, you know, ultimately, there was some interesting conclusions drawn in that where non-consumptive people actually, you know, had a a little bit higher level level of satisfaction overall with their outdoors experience. Consumptive people tended to have a little lower overall. Um, and it was, it was like 8 out of 10 and 7 out of 10. It wasn't a huge disparity. But the big thing was is, you know, the consumptive recreation group was just a whole lot more invested in the landscape, you know, because... We, we understand that give and take of that. Instead of being spectators, we're more involved in the whole cycle of life, right? Right. So if you can go find that article and read it, it was there was some epitomes in there. Just Yeah, maybe we can try to find it and put it in our show notes and have it for people to check out. Um, so as far as, you know, back to elk specifically, archery, you know, I, I touched on the two pieces of gear I think are... I don't care what weapon you use. I don't care what backpack you have. What about physical conditioning? What what do you need there? That's probably the piece that I've seen the most people, they spend way too much time agonizing over where am I going to hunt and what tent and what rifle and what bullet and what broadhead. And they don't spend enough time just, you know, especially if you live at lower elevations, elk live, you know, most of the hunts you're going to go on and units you're going to go to are going to be 5,000 plus feet. You know, I've been a, as high as 10,000 chasing elk. And there's a huge difference just going from 85.9 up to 10. It's like somebody all of a sudden <laughs> took the oxygen right. I mean... It's like getting sucker punched. Oh, it's... Up there. It, I mean, just hike it up to go... I'm like, oh, let's check out this 10.5 peak real quick, right? From from 92. And that's not a big deal. It's huge. But if you're living at under two or three thousand feet and you're going to go to over five or six for a hunt you know altitude sickness is a real thing people like make fun of it or make light of it but you can die from it we've had people die from it in this state so you know make sure you acclimate drink lots of water but show up you know and i know i know the hunters really like the alcohol but i mean alcohol serves me no purpose especially when i'm elk hunting and i might get crucified for saying that that's okay i i mean it's a physical game and if you're not on top of it and getting after it i mean there's a lot of days patrick we're putting well over 12 miles in i think my buddy's gps one year said 188 miles in a 12-day hunt and over half of that was side hill off trail you know it wasn't just flatland buzzing in buzzing out it was slow, like, I think we averaged less than a mile per hour, right? So it was a ton of time on your feet, moving with weight on your back. What's the best thing to do to get ready? Take a couple, you know, leftover milk jugs, fill them up with water, put them in a backpack, start with one, and go for a 30-minute hike. Put two jugs in the next week. You know, and get up to where you've got 30, 40 pounds, and that moves me into the next portion of... You know, if you're lucky enough to be successful on an elk hunt, you just put a thousand pound animal on the ground. And let's, let's think about that for a minute. You know, if you went solo DIY, which a lot of guys do, and it's a fun way to do it, you're going to be put in a bind to get that meat out of there before it spoils. And I mean, it's ultimately your responsibility. You've taken that animal's life it needs to be done it needs to be done right and you've got to put the time in so i mean we're sitting here and i've got horse pasture now and horses and invest a lot of time and money in that 
so that when that elk's on the ground, I can stroll up on horses and stroll out. Now, not everybody's going to have that capability. I, I'm very blessed and fortunate. It took me, you know, I, I had access to the outfitter's horses and used those until I quit doing that. And there was an eight-year period where I used mountain bikes, I used four-wheelers, I used llamas, I used pickups. I used my feet and my back a lot and... I don't want to do that anymore. Sorry. I'll admit it. It's, you know, the first load's grueling. The second load's painful. The third load is just miserable. It's, yeah. it takes. And so if you have a couple buddies that you need to have some plan for, you know, if you're going to be successful, you know, and sometimes like when I lived in Alaska, you know, there's a couple guys solo DIY moose hunt that they had a mile cutoff, right? If they were a mile from a vehicle four-wheeler road because with a Yukon moose, I mean, with an elk, three guys, three packs, it's done. Whole thing, I, I mean, that's hawks, that's neck meat. It, they're heavy packs, but it's done. With a moose, you, three guys, three packs, and not going to get a whole moose. Not not a Yukon. Maybe one of these Shiras if you got some big guys, but... So that, I mean, you need to plan on... That's what I said. If you do that... DIY with, and you do a, a drop camp with an outfitter. He's gonna haul you and your gear in, right? If you're lucky enough to be successful, he's gonna haul your meat out, take it to a cooler. You can finish your hunt with your buddies and then get hauled back out. That for starting off on a budget is probably it's the best of both worlds, right? So you you have some of the help and resources the outfitter has, but you also got the flexibility of being DIY and yes, the cost is, I think, you know, from what I've seen, it's somewhere around 2000 bucks per head on a drop camp for a seven to 10 day archery elk hunt, which I mean, I own horses and horse trailers and feed and shoes and vet bills. It, it's not a bad way to go. The other option, you know, to look at is rent llamas. You know, if you have very limited packing experience, you know, llamas, Packing is way different than horse packing. They they come with little panniers. You put even weight in each side. You know llamas are big dogs on a lead, and they're they're kind of indestructible. I mean, you can overload them, but you know horses are much more frail. I, I guess mm-hmm. I would put it than llamas. Now, that being said, as a horse guy, if you've got llamas on the trail, my horses hate llamas. You're going to cause a wreck. You're going to get somebody killed, right? If you've got llamas and their horses are coming, get those llamas not two feet off the trail, but as humanly, physically far off. I mean, 20 to 100 yards off the trail. Announce your presence to the horses. Because when I was coming through with the outfitter with 15 or 20 horses and dudes and gear, and I mean, you want to talk about a wreck, have a llama standing right there in the middle. Some of them, they just, they don't get along. Horses just really don't like a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, horses are... I mean, honestly, the, the quickest way to ruin a hunt is a horse. Is a horse, yeah. My, my father-in-law would appreciate it. He, he says the best horse is bear bait. He, he just doesn't like them, doesn't get along. But, I mean, all you got to do is get stepped on or kicked, and your hunt's over. So Yeah, or thrown off. Or, yeah, there's but a lot that can go wrong. They also make a hunt pretty, pretty good. Yeah. So... You know, again, get in shape. Have realistic expectations of where you're going. And I see way too many people, and I've done it several times, on a five-day hunt. The first two days, I'm doing 16 miles instead of 12. And then the last two days, I can only do six miles because I've blistered up my feet and my back's just done. Shot, yeah. So take the first day or two a little easier, right? And I remember one of our guided rifle hunts. One of the biggest bulls that was ever killed in our area was by a older gentleman that walked maybe 400 yards behind camp every day. Everybody else was getting up at daylight leaving. It was like noon one day, a big old bull come walking right behind camp and he shot it, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's. I've heard stories about that as well where you have the guy that's back at camp hanging out and all of a sudden this big bull elk walks in 50 yards away and they shoot the elk like that's to me i'm like yeah i could i could do that but i know you're you're into you know the whole chase and all that but i'd be like oh that works out pretty good 
Well, I mean, it's... It's... Either way is fine. Yeah. Well, I, I think one of the things that we may put out there, too, is just kind of a... You know, the biggest thing, like like David's saying, is your legs have to be able to withstand the punishment that you're going to put on it. Because I've done those 16-mile days, and they hurt a lot. So your feet, your legs, your back, those are the primary things that get pounded. And if you're if you're working out six to eight weeks before you go to where your legs are in shape and your core is in shape and your back's in shape, because I can tell you from carrying heavy packs, you better have a strong abdominal and back area or you're going to be in trouble yeah and that's that's the one thing that a lot of people just starting out you know if you've been well i've been backpacking well you know i can go on a five-day backpack if i'm just backpacking with no hunting gear 30 pounds with food right and as i go every day i eat a, a pound of food out of the backpack it goes from 40 pounds down to 30 pounds you know with hunting at the end of it you've had a 40 pound pack all week i mean i my day packs running 30 some pounds with my first aid and my shelter and my water purifier and the extra broadheads and the optics and you know i now carry a personal locator beacon because i i don't where i go cell phones don't work right and we have there's a myriad of ways you can get hurt and having that communication lifeline is but still don't don't depend on, oh, I'm just going to have this and not have any knowledge or first aid experience or equipment because you might have weather and, and the helicopters and the search and rescue team's not coming. Yeah, and you may be physically shot and then kill something and really regret it because now your body is basically cramping up or you yeah, know, fighting say, against you. Hunting's the only sport where we, we're physically exhausted and then we add you know another 80 pounds to our pack and try and hawk out so you know six eight weeks minimum i'd say you know start an exercise routine where you're doing again even if it's 30 40 minutes three days a week you're just just walking (laughs) you know get home from work grab your backpack and just and start in january or february with some resistance training and you know it's it's grueling. It's tough. Yeah. And I, that's a great time to put your hunting boots on and go on that walk. Where you come in. Yeah. I mean. I would really stress, too, that you, when you do get an animal down, one, your body needs to be ready, but you also need to make sure that you're hydrated to the point that you can do it. I've, I've helped pack out animals and had cramps, you know, and cramping is not fun when your legs are shot anyway, and then you're carrying all this weight and start to get cramps in your hamstrings and calves and different things you got to really make sure you've got the water the electrolytes everything in your system that you need or you're going to be put in a bad spot so do you do you carry anything to add to your water if, if you need electrolytes or anything like that oh yeah there's a there's a ton of different companies out there and i'm trying a couple new ones this year you know, as far as electrolytes sure. but i you, you need lots to of be, options oh yeah you need to be replacing that. I mean, and I go further. I, I, I have amino acids, right? Sure. I mean... Because you're shedding water all the time. I mean, especially in the high country, it's super dry. You're you're putting yourself through physical pain <laughs> going and, up and down those hills. And in my opinion, I, I mean, I, I like to go in a little bit heavy on a... Like, let's say I do another 12-day sheep hunt, right? You can't... You can plan and backpack about 2,000 to 3,000 calories a day, right? That's 3,000 calories is a heavy backpack. 2,000 is a little light. Somewhere in there is spot on. On a typical hunt like that, any human being is going to be burning 10 to 12,000 calories. You're eating two to three. You got a 9,000 calorie deficit. Going in a couple three pounds, five pounds heavier than your ideal weight is okay. I, sure. I routinely go into elk hunting season and come out, you know, and we'll do four or six weeks, and we're not doing it straight, but we'll do a two-week here, take a week at home, do this or that, go on a deer hunt there or go there. But, you know, I typically go into August in the high 180s and come out of October in the low 160s, right? Just because, and when you hike that much, you know, come, home, come in at 9, 10 o'clock at night, 
I'm not going to eat a 4,000 calorie meal if it was put in front of me. I'm going to have a little water. I'm going to have a piece of beef jerky. I'm going to go to bed. Yeah. So definitely getting getting those electrolytes and those aminos in your water. And I've had the uh, unfortunate experience of running out of water more than once. And most of it's self-induced. But I'm planning and changing my gear to where, you know, I, I went from like a, a liter and a half bladder to like a three and a half, four liter bladder. And I got a gallon of water in my bladder. The problem with only having water in just your bladder and not having any other water source if you get a little heavy on the hose during the hikes during the day, the, the worst sound you can hear is that, and you're, and you're still two miles from the truck. So I've got tablets, I've got a pump, I'm sticking an extra, you know, Gatorade, Powerade in the bottom of my backpack so that when we do have that, you know, 10 o'clock midnight meat haul that we're doing, and, and why are we doing that? Well, we're hunting in grizzly country, and it, yeah. it changes some circumstances. It changes the game. Having that and one extra pound in your backpack of water, yeah, it's a lot to lug around all week. But when you run out of water, having that extra, you know, thirty-two ounces in the bottom, yeah, it's a even even if it's an extra just twelve ouncer. When you're really hurting for water, an ounce is pretty nice. Yeah. So everybody, I think this is going to wrap up episode one of this. We're going to do a few part series here on archery elk hunting. Um, and David, you know, he's, he's done it a lot, so he's definitely a good resource for this. So again, if you guys get a chance, get out there to our website, it's brand new radcastoutdoors.com. Check us out. Um, definitely go out and please rate and subscribe. Um, that's one of the things you can do. If you like this show and you want to help us out, that is one of the biggest things that you can do to help us is to do that. And then the other big thing is tell your friends. Um, this show is not possible without you guys going out and telling you know your buddies about it and um, getting us some more listens and subscribes and reviews. So we really appreciate it. And we will be back again with more content here shortly. Thanks, guys.